Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. All of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your precious word that has been preserved for us, for our instruction, and for our edification. And we we ask, Lord, that by the teaching of the Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into truth, that we might understand this passage, that it would speak to our hearts, that it would shape our thinking, it would shape our behavior, that we would know the freedom that Jesus Christ has secured for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I did uh, provide notes for everyone. I'm not sure if everybody got a copy. We may have run out of some. So if you didn't get them and you want them, I can email them to you or give you a copy later on. There's actually quite a bit on the notes. And I'm not going to hit everything on them. It's sort of like a study sheet if you want to go deeper into some of these matters. But I want to begin with a definition of liberty that is quite contrary to what the Scriptures teach. And I want to do that to present a contrast for us so that we can consider what does it mean to have liberty as a Christian. In 1992, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down a decision related to one of the most consequential ethical decisions of our time, the the matter of abortion in our land. And that particular decision is... Uh, was known as the Casey decision. And I want to present to you something that was said in that decision, which I think really does give us insight into why our nation is so corrupted in terms of its perspective on liberty and why the very idea of abortion makes sense to people when it should be abhorrent to us. In that decision, Anthony Kennedy, the associate justice, said this about liberty. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. It's a remarkable statement to make, that at the heart of liberty is the right to define the meaning of the universe? You can see why, then, such a terrible decision was made by the Supreme Court on the basis of such ideas of liberty. That definition of liberty, as you know, is quite popular in American culture. Many people, many Americans think about freedom in this manner, the right to define one's own meaning, to do whatever one wants to do, and even going so far as to harm one in the case of abortion. 
It should come as no surprise that such a devilish conception of liberty was the foundation of that evil Supreme Court decision. And I say it's devilish because what did the tempter say to Adam and Eve in the garden? He was tempting Adam and Eve to define their own concept of existence, to define right and wrong for themselves, contrary to how God had defined it. And I want to present that definition of liberty, that false definition of liberty, with the true definition that the Word of God gives us. Because this passage from Galatians is about liberty, about what it means to be free in Christ. Now far from defining our own existence or defining the meaning of life on our own basis, the Word of God says that liberty is to be set free from our biggest problem, enslavement to sin enslavement to the devil, and the judgment to come. We are set free from those things in Christ. Liberty is not to live enslaved to the idol of self and its passions, but rather it is the liberty to live for God. Liberty is to fulfill our original purpose for which God made us, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him into all eternity. That is what it means to be free, brothers and sisters. And hence, when our Lord Jesus spoke about slavery and freedom in John 8, He contrasted slavery with sin with the freedom that He provides. He says to the Jews who prided themselves on their freedom, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus says, free indeed. He wants us to understand that the liberty that he provides is not a sham liberty. It's not fake. It is a real freedom. Now, one can boast all day long about the freedom they have to do what they want, but as long as one is enslaved to their sinful desires, they are not free. On the contrary, they're enslaved to self, they're enslaved to their passions, they're under the dominion of the evil one. Now, many people boast of the liberties that they have. There's all different kinds of liberties that are trumpeted in our land. They're called these different rights that are constantly being manufactured as things that People claim they have the right to do, but we need to remind ourselves and we need to remind others that what many people call liberty is just another form of slavery. In fact, when Peter was writing his second letter, he he spoke of the false teachers that were in the midst of the church and they were actually promising liberty, he writes. Here's what he says in 2 Peter 2.19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And so Peter says, this isn't freedom. They claim liberty, but what they're actually doing is presenting different forms of slavery, slavery to the corruption of sin. And so let's keep in mind some of these popular definitions of liberty as we we turn to Galatians and we see the fullness of true liberty that Christ grants us as we move into chapter 5 today. Now as we move into chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, we we do come to uh, somewhat of a new section of this letter. It it certainly is a section that particularly emphasizes the application of 
of the gospel that Paul has been defending and proclaiming in Galatians. These chapters, chapters 5 and 6, are especially taken up with matters of the Christian life, what it means to live in Christ. And as we come into chapters 5 and 6, I want us to remember a foundational core point that Paul made back in Galatians 2. If you look at Galatians 2, 19 through 20, this is a foundational statement about what it means to be a Christian, which is why so many memorize it as a foundational verse. In fact, I think in the Navigator's topical memory system, if you all are familiar with that memory uh, program for memorizing the scriptures, Galatians 2.20 is, I think, one of the very first verses that you memorize. So here's what it says. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Now, I've said this a number of times. It may sound redundant, but what you need to understand is the Christian life is a life. I know that's redundant, but I say it because I want us to understand that to be a Christian is to be alive to God. No longer dead in sin, but alive to God, alive in fellowship, in union with Jesus Christ. And that person that is united to Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, lives for God. That is the aim of the Christian, is to live for God. And so what chapters 5 and 6 spell out for us then is what it means to live for God. It spells out for us the implication of being united to Jesus by faith. And so we need to view it all in connection with what Paul has already taught us in chapter 2. Now I want to narrow in today on the topic of liberty, so let's look at verse 1 once again and consider this command, this exhortation to stand fast for liberty. Paul writes, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now what joyful words these should be to hear for us, brothers and sisters, that we have been made free in Christ. Here we have summarized for us one of the purposes for which Jesus came, for which he died, for which he rose again, which was to make you free. Children, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you may be set free. Well, then the the next obvious question as we talk about freedom is freedom from what? What is it that we're enslaved to, what is it that we're in bondage to, apart from the freeing work of Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible has much to say in answering that question, and I actually want to give you a list, hopefully a comprehensive list of what it means to be free in Christ, which you'll find in your notes. But before we read that list, just let's keep in mind again the central issues at stake in Galatians. What was it that was taking place there? Well, you may recall one of the central issues of Galatians is whether Gentile believers were required to submit to these old covenant rituals in order to be members of the people of God, in order to be accepted 
with God. Those rituals, rituals included circumcision, feast days, other external requirements of the Old Covenant, and likely there were other man-made traditions being imposed upon them. And we saw back in Acts 15 verse 1 a summary of the kinds of things that were probably being taught in the churches of Galatia. Acts 15.1 is a description of men from Judea, but it appears that the same kind of teaching was making its way uh, in other places as well, including Galatia. And here's what, it, what Acts 15.1 says. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's pretty straightforward in terms of the implications of that teaching. Circumcision was being presented in Galatia, in Galatia as an absolute requirement. It was being imposed, and, and therefore the, the Christians in that, those churches were now beginning to trust in something that they had done in order to gain their fa- favor with God and fellowship with Him. Now, as long as circumcision was just a matter of expediency, then it was ultimately an indifferent thing. In fact, one chapter later in Acts 16, Paul circumcises Timothy in order to not be an offense to the Jews that are in that region. It's possible to do this external rite, provided that it's not done for the wrong reasons. But Paul would not submit for a moment to anyone who made any ritual, any other act of law-keeping a requirement to be saved, a requirement to be in fellowship with the living God. And we've learned many times throughout this letter, Paul is saying, once you subjugate yourself to the requirements of the law, you are a debtor to do all of it. Not just part of it, you have to do all of it if you're going to be in favor with God. And so Paul is telling them, you need to stand fast in the freedom that Christ has granted you. He's granted you freedom from the curse of the law. He's granted you freedom from all these external rights being imposed upon you. You don't have to do these things any, anymore. And so what I want to do here briefly is to give you an extensive list of what Christian liberty is. And I want to just give, I hope, maximum clarity in providing this list for you. And it's possible I've missed something on this list, so if, you, if something occurs to you afterwards, please come talk to me. I did my best to try to summarize all that Scripture says about this. And to do that, I actually drew from our Confession of Faith, which has a wonderful chapter on Christian liberty, which I commend to your reading. It's in, the, in your notes if you want to look at it later on. And in those notes, I put all the Scripture references within the Confession itself so that you can see just how it's drawing from Scripture directly. So I want to read this list for you, and we can amen along the way with this list as we consider what it means to be free in Christ. We're not going to dig into all of these today, but in future weeks we'll be able to unpack pieces of them. So what is Christian liberty? What is freedom in Christ? There's 13 things I put on this list. First of all, we are freed from the guilt of sin. Amen. We are freed from the condemning wrath of God. Amen. We are freed from the curse of the moral law. The law cannot curse us anymore. Amen. We are freed from this present evil age with its destructive corruptions. Amen. Freed from the bondage to Satan. Amen. 
Freedom from the dominion of sin and freedom to yield oneself as a slave to Jesus Christ and as a slave for righteousness. Amen. Freedom from the evil of afflictions. And I wanted to explain this one for a moment because think about this. What Romans 8.28 says, God turns all the hard and bad things in our life unto good purposes. These afflictions are not evil. The, the, the sting of the evil is removed because God uses them for good. Amen? Freedom from the sting of death and the victory of the grave. Amen. Freedom from everlasting damnation. Amen. We have free access to God, brothers and sisters. Amen. We are now free to yield obedience to God, not in slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and a willing heart as his children. Amen. We are freed from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in addition to God's word or they're contrary to it. Either one, we are set free from those things as well. Amen. We are also freed from the unlawful commands of lawful authorities. And we've had to think about this a little bit more at times in terms of what happens when a lawful authority like the civil government tells you to do something unlawful or commands you beyond their respective sphere of authority. That is actually a relevant and important matter of Christian liberty. Amen? So here's a list for you. Now we'll come back to these in future weeks to consider and unpack different parts of this because Galatians will narrow in on a few more of these. Now in contrast with that, what is Christian liberty if we contrast it with what may, some people may claim as liberty? What is not Christian liberty? Well, I thought of five overarching categories here. There may be other ways to summarize this, but you'll notice in the notes I put quotes around them because I don't think they're actually freedom, but they're claimed freedoms. First, the quote, freedom to practice or cherish any sin, which is in fact a form of slavery. This is not freedom. To practice sin, to cherish sin, to hold on to your idols, that's not freedom, brothers and sisters. Secondly, the freedom to think however I want. We're not, we're not allowed to do that. We, we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, aren't we? We don't think however we want as Christians. The freedom to do whatever I want. No, that's, that's off the table as well, because why? We have been bought with a price, the Bible says. Glorify God with your body. The freedom to disobey lawful authority in family, church, and state. People that cast off all restraints, they cast off all authorities, and they say, I am free from all of those things. Well, no, the scriptures tell us we honor father and mother, we submit and obey our elders and the church of Christ, and we submit to civil government as well when they are acting in lawful accord with God's word. And then fifthly, we do not have the freedom to seek our own interests, This is basic to Christian discipleship, brothers and sisters. If we are Christians, we do not seek our own. We seek the interests of others in humility. Now, this is a big list. We could unpack all of these. Each of these points could be its own sermon. But what I want to ask you is, what what list is precious to you here? As you look at these lists, there's, there's certain things that people seek in life. There are people in our nation that are seeking this second list of five things. They are seeking this kind of autonomy from God and autonomy for self. But if you are a Christian, then those list of 13 items should be very precious to you. They should define for you the joyful Christian life, the life of freedom. Now, if you fight for the wrong list, if you fight for that list of false liberties, it is indicative of unbelief and enslavement to sin. 
But if you are a Christian, then the, the list that you should stand fast for is that list of 13 items in which Christ has made us free. Now Paul's going to apply this matter of liberty to particularly freedom from the curse of the moral law and as freedom also from the bondage of additional external rituals that were being imposed upon them. And so let's go now to the second portion here, verses 2 through 4. Paul gives these intense warnings in our passage. He warns them about putting any trust in anything that they have done, which of course we know circumcision was the main thing that the temptation was to put their trust in. But to put your confidence in something that you have done to gain your right standing with God is to fundamentally deny the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. You see, our Lord Jesus, he came to save us from our sins and his salvation is not a partial salvation. He did not come to get you 50% of the way so that you could do the rest. Jesus' salvation takes care of it all. If we believe in him, if we put our trust in him, then we are declared righteous in God's sight. Not only is our justification sourced in him, but also even our sanctification comes by the working of the Holy Spirit within us and in union with Jesus Christ. So kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, Jesus is the perfect Savior for sinners. We cannot add to what Jesus did. Jesus is the perfect Savior for sinners, and we cannot add to what Jesus did. Now, Paul said earlier in Galatians 2.21, he says, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died in vain. He says, why would Jesus have come at all? If this is the way in which we gain our righteousness before God, then Jesus' incarnation, his, his death and his resurrection, it's all meaningless if we could have kept the law of God. But the whole point of Jesus' coming is itself an indication that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the sinful flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So let's read verses 2 through 4 and consider Paul's very sober warnings. Verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Strong warnings for someone who was considering participating in this ritual. Perhaps many of the Galatians were on the edge of doing that. It's very possible, actually, that they had started observing days and seasons and years, because Paul says as much in chapter 4. So they had probably begun this process, and circumcision was the point at which they seemed to swallow the whole teaching. And so some were probably contemplating this. They're saying, I'm hearing all this teaching, I'm hearing that I need to do this. And they were on the edge, and Paul says to them, if you accept this ritual, if you put your trust in this ritual for your right standing with God and for your entrance into the family of God, Christ will be of no benefit to you whatsoever. It's pretty shocking, isn't it, to think that one ritual, which could technically be a matter of indifference in other circumstances, one ritual could cut you off from Christ 
Why is Paul so strong in saying this? Well, I think Paul is making two points, and I want to read these two points that I I, I summarized here to get at, at what he is saying. And The first of these points is this, if you submit yourself to a pattern of law-keeping as the grounds of your righteousness before God, one act of obedience is not enough. You are now a debtor to keep the whole law and to keep it without a single failure. The second point is that if you decide to go the route of law-keeping to secure your righteousness before God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you because you either take Christ as a whole... Or you cannot have him at all. Either he is your savior who saves you from all your sins. Or he isn't your savior. Now let's dig into each of these a bit more. He says you're a debtor to keep the whole law. And he says this in a very solemn way. He says, I, Paul, say to you. He brings out his own name to make sure that they grasp the solemnity of what they are going to do. He says, if you adopt just this one thing, the principle that you are adopting as well, it's more than just this one act. You are adopting a larger principle, and that larger principle is the idea that anything that you do will gain your standing with God. And he reminds them, he says, you're a debtor to keep this whole law. If you sign yourself up for this way of salvation, you're going to have to work really hard. And you're going to be doomed to failure from the start. Part of the reason that people sometimes don't grasp the problem with this is that they diminish the demands of God's law. They don't understand how comprehensive of a demand the law of God is. They don't understand the perfections of God's holiness. Back in the time of Christ, there was a school of rabbinic thought led by the rabbi Hillel. And I've mentioned him in previous sermon in this regard. And, and Hillel argued, he, he argued that if you could get your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds, if you could reach 51% of good deeds in comparison with your bad deeds, you were okay. And of course, we, we've heard the same kind of perspective. People will say, if my good works outweigh my bad ones, God will let me into heaven. And they think that they're probably doing okay as they say it. They, they somehow think that they're, maybe their good works are outweighing their bad works. But anyone who says that, first of all, doesn't grasp that the law of God requires not 51%, not 70%, not 90%. It requires 100% conformity. And they also don't understand that they're pretty far removed from 51%. They're not even close to making that percentage. So for those who rely on the law for their right standing before God, the law pronounces a curse upon them. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law to do all of them. And so how foolish it would be to rest our our relationship with God in something we do, no matter how many things that it was that you did. The holiest of saints would still fall short of God's demands of his law, to love him with the heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love neighbor as self. Even the holiest of saints could not do it. Only Christ did it for us. And so Paul is presenting them this consequence of their decision. If they accept this, they are doomed to failure 
from the start. And he doesn't want them to choose that way. He wants them to rest in Christ. He doesn't want their confidence to be shifted anywhere else from Christ, the solid rock in in whom they would find their hope and righteousness. And he says that if you accept the circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. You're fallen from grace. This is a very serious thing. And as I said, Jesus' death and resurrection will either save us from our sins comprehensively, entirely, or he will not save us at all. He is, he is a savior that does all of the work. You, can't, you cannot diminish from his glory by trying to add your peace to his salvation. And so anybody who would attempt this justification by law, Paul is saying, you, you abandon the offer of God's grace in Christ. You must choose one path. You cannot have both. That's what he's saying. And so that leads us into verse 5, where Paul expresses the foundation of his hope and the foundation of the hope of every true believer. Let's read verse 5 again. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. This is a very succinct and beautiful statement of the Christian hope. And I encourage you to memorize this verse. It's quite simple to memorize. I would put it up there with Galatians 2.20 as a a creed, as a confession of every Christian. What is the hope of your righteousness? Righteousness. And I want to explain first what it means and then consider the implications for the confident life that we are to have as Christians who are set free from the curse of the law and from many other things. First of all, we see that Paul says we, and he's referring to true believers in Christ when he says we, and he says through the Spirit. Now why does he say through the Spirit? Well, we know that elsewhere in Galatians, the Spirit's role is to give us a confidence of our adoption in Christ. We learned that in chapter 4, verse 6. It says there, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So why is the Spirit given to us? Well, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in every Christian is to give them confidence that they are the sons and daughters of God. And so what he is saying here in verse 5 is that the Spirit comes to enable us to hope in the righteousness that God provides. Now the next question is, why does he say we're waiting for the hope of righteousness? We're waiting for the hope of righteousness. Paul is not saying that we are waiting to see if God will declare us righteous. He's not saying that. Because we learn from Galatians and from Romans and other places that when we believe in Christ, we are justified from that point. Remember Romans 5 verse 1, having been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that gives us boldness and access and confidence. So Paul's not saying we're waiting to be declared righteous, but what are we waiting for? Here's how I would put it. Paul is expressing that he and every other believer is confident that because of his union with Jesus Christ, 
He presently stands righteous before God, and so he is confident that on the day of Christ's return, on the day of final judgment, he will be vindicated. The hope of righteousness is Jesus Christ, who is his righteousness, who is at the right hand of God, and so he's not anxious, he's not worried about his standing with God. He hopes in this righteousness which is not his own. And this gives him a sense of confidence and peace and freedom. Now, whereas those that are living by their own merits are constantly subject to doubt, right? If you're living by your own merits, you're going to have doubts, you're going to have anxieties, you have no confidence that God is favorable towards you because the next time that you fail, you wonder if God is no longer favorable towards you. But if you're hoping in the righteousness that God provides by faith, ministered by the Holy Spirit, you are confident. You are free. You are ready for the day of judgment. You are ready for the day of Christ's return, and you can meet it joyfully. The idea is well expressed in the hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. And we too can sing these words if we have that hope of righteousness. It says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, when with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? He's saying there's no charges that can be brought against me in that great day. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. So we will stand bold in the great day because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is what our hope is set in, brothers and sisters. And this is the confidence that flows from a right understanding of the good news of Christ. You are not anxious about these things. You are confident because you are confident that Jesus Christ is a great Savior and you're confident that if you have put your trust in Him, He receives you. And it was this faith that enabled so many of God's people to give up their lives unto death. And I think if you want to hear what it sounds like when the Christian is hoping in this righteousness by faith, you can turn to the words of many of the martyrs to see this kind of confidence. And there's many examples that we could use, but I remember a number of years ago in my study of the Scottish Covenanters, how remarkable it was their their final words, their final testimony of faith as they faced death. These men and women who gave up their lives for the pure worship of God and for the kingship of Christ over his church in Scotland. And you read these words and these these men and women are facing imminent death, but the amount of peace, the confidence that they have is only explainable on the basis of what verse 5 describes, that they were hoping in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, by faith, ministered by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a few words to consider in this regard. And what I'm trying to give you here is a sense of what verse 5 sounds like on the lips of a Christian. You don't have to face death to use verse 5. You should, we should all be using verse 5 as the testimony of our hope. But this gives you a sense of the solidity, the confidence that comes when we believe verse 5. Here is the testimony of James Guthrie. He was born in 1638 and he faced death in 1661 in Edinburgh for his commitments to the pure worship of God. And as he ascended the scaffold there to be hanged in Edinburgh, 
This was his final prayer to God as it was recorded by those that were around him. Now listen for the confidence of verse 5 in these words. Blessed be God who has shown mercy to me, such a wretch, and has revealed his Son in me, and made me a minister of the everlasting gospel, and that he hath deigned in the midst of much contradiction from Satan and the world to seal my ministry upon the hearts of not a few of his people, and especially in the station where I was last, the congregation and presbytery of Stirling, Scotland. Here's, here's his testimony of faith. Jesus Christ is my life and my light, my righteousness, my strength, and my salvation and all my desire. Him, O oh Him, I do with all the strength of my soul commend to you. Bless Him, O oh my soul, from henceforth even forever. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, do you hear the confidence of this man? Do you hear verse 5? This is a man hoping, not in himself... He would not have confidence if he was hoping in himself. He says he's a wretch in this testimony. But he says, Jesus Christ is my life, my light, my righteousness, my strength, and all my salvation is from him. That's verse 5, brothers and sisters, expressed on the words of one who believes. Then there's the testimony of James Renwick, one of the last of the covenanters. He was executed at the age of 26 in the year 1688. Two hours before his execution, he shared a meal with his mother and his two sisters, and and here was his prayer as he faced death. He said, O Lord, you have brought me within two hours of eternity, and this is no matter of terror to me, more than if I were to lie down in a bed of roses. Nay, through grace to thy praise, I may say I never had the fear of death. Since I came to this prison, but from the place where I was taken, I could have gone very composedly to the scaffold. Oh, how can I contain this? To be within two hours of the crown of glory. You see the confidence. This man, he's saying, it is not at all a terror to me to face death because he is confident in the crown of glory. But what what was his confidence placed in? Is this a man who trusts in his own righteousness to gain the crown of glory? Far from it. His hope was in the grace of God, as he says. Now what I want you to see from all of this, brothers and sisters, is this is the kind of confident faith that we should have as the Holy Spirit fills us. Far from that spirit of bondage unto fear that we talked about last week, this is the spirit of confidence in fellowship with God, in favor with God, in confidence that we are right with God. And so you can see then, this is one of the ways that freedom expresses itself in the Christian life is that kind of confidence because of the salvation of Christ. Now we come to the last verse of our passage today where Paul moves into a matter of application, the matter of what does faith bring forth. So on one hand, Paul Paul said, circumcision, if you accept it, will cut you off from Christ because he was speaking to those that were going to undergo this ritual for these reasons by which they would put their trust in something that they had done. But Paul wants them to see that ultimately, as, as just an external ritual, circumcision really doesn't matter that much. What matters, what is of utmost importance, is how saving faith 
brings forth a life of love. And that is what he says in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now we've learned so far in Galatians that it is faith alone that justifies a sinner before God. We, we look to Christ. We don't look to ourselves at all. And yet for Paul and for all the other writers of the New Testament, saving faith is inseparably connected with a life of love. You cannot separate them. You will not have saving faith without there being some manifestation of the life of love. It's noteworthy that we see the triad of faith, hope, and love in these two verses. If you look at verse 5 and 6, you'll see just like 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest of these is love. Well, here we have in verses 5 through 6, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, and then he says faith working through love. This is what's important in the Christian life, brothers and sisters. It's not about all these externalisms and externalistic rituals. It is about the substantial reality that Jesus Christ brings about in his people, which is the existence of faith, hope, and love. And so it is impossible to have saving faith without the saving faith starting to evidence itself in a life of love. We know it's going to be growing. We know it could be in fits and starts. It's going to be there, though. When the root has been transformed by the grace of God, then surely the life will evidence fruit. And we, of course, cannot remind ourselves too many times of Galatians 2, 19 through 20, which I read earlier, that that idea that we are united to Christ, we are alive in Jesus. And this should be very straightforward to us. If Jesus rose from the dead, and if we are alive in him, then Christians are those who have risen from the dead. We are spiritually alive to live for God, and people that are alive can live a new life. People that are risen from the dead can love other people. They can love God with a sincere heart. They can love other people. And I think this is also reinforced by the fact, if you look at a very close parallel in Galatians, Galatians 6, 15. This is almost exactly the same statement as verse 6 of our chapter, but notice the other phrase that Paul adds. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Now, if we bring that verse into connection with the verse we're studying, we see that a new creation brought about by the Spirit of God means a life of faith working through love. That's what the new creation looks like. Kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, saving faith will always produce a growing life of loving God and loving others. Saving faith will always produce a growing life of loving God and loving others. And so if we have... real faith, we have substantial faith created by God, then we know that it's also going to produce a substantial love. And Paul, of course, wants them to understand that liberty in Christ is not liberty unto license, not liberty unto sin. He'll say that, do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but what? Through love, 
serve one another. We'll come back to that in later weeks. So far from producing a life of laxness and indifference and disinterest in others, the life of God that is implanted in the soul brings forth a life of power expressed in faith, hope, and love. And this is far better than a bunch of cheap externalisms. It it, it would be quite possible. You could have a bunch of spiritually dead people all get circumcised, right? And they have no love. We could put any other ritual in there. We could attach 20 to 30 other labels and externalisms and things that we like to talk about and do, and we could be dead people. We could have no spirit of God within us. We could, we, could be un, we could not be united to Jesus Christ and we would not have substantial and real love. And in fact, this is what Paul says about the law elsewhere in Romans 7, 6. He says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So if you just have the law of God and you have no spirit of God, it's just a a dead external that we're not even able to really keep anyway. But where there is faith, we can actually begin to obey God's commandments. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, not fully until glory. But we can indeed love God. We can indeed love one another. Martin Luther once described faith in this way. He said, faith is an active, busy, and mighty thing. Faith does things. Faith works, Paul says, through love. It's got energy behind it. And in this matter of faith bringing forth fruit, Paul and James, of course, are in perfect agreement. James says in chapter 2, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What a perfect... uh, illustration for us where the spirit of god exists there is life and that life will bring forth love and so brothers and sisters we are called in this passage to stand fast in this liberty we have that whole list of course but what we clearly see as we come here to galatians is one of the key matters of liberty one of the key ways that you exercise your freedom is to love your neighbor as yourself Any other claimed freedom where you're all about self is not the right kind of freedom. That's not the freedom we're talking about. We are talking about the freedom of being unconstrained from your selfish passions and the freedom to love your brothers and sisters in Christ with a heart of faith. And so, brothers and sisters, we are set free from the bondage of sin and Satan to a life of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, a life of service to God, and a life of love. So may it be that these are the things that grow within us as we grasp this teaching, as we believe it, as we set our hope in Christ alone. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have become our Father by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you today for the substantial and comprehensive freedom Jesus Christ has won for us. I pray that we as a church would walk in this freedom. That we would, through love, serve one another. I pray that we would know the freedom from the enslaving shackles of sin and experience the joy of the life of love in obedience to your commandments. 
We pray also against enslavement into human traditions and externalisms that are not rooted in faith and love. We want substantial life. So we pray that in our congregation that our faith would be a busy, active, and mighty thing. That it would bring forth fruit for the glory of your name. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.